from Liverpool, England. The significance is that the Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. Jerry Mitchell is an American investigative reporter, formerly with the Clarion Ledger, a newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi. He convinced authorities to reopen cold murder cases from the civil rights era. Jerry's reporting has helped put at least four Klansmen behind bars. Byron de la Beckwith for the 1963 assassination of the NAACP leader Medgar Evers, Imperial Wizard Sam Bowers for ordering the fatal firebombing of the NAACP leader Vernon Dahmer in 1966, Bobby Cherry for the 1963 bombing of a Birmingham church that killed four girls, and in 2005, Edgar Ray Killen for helping orchestrate the June 21, 1964 killings of three civil rights leaders. Jerry Mitchell's work inspired others. Since 1989, authorities in Mississippi and six other states have re-examined 29 killings from the civil rights era and made 27 arrests, leading to 22 convictions. It's an honor to have Jerry on the show today. Hey, Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Doing well, Jack. Thanks for having me. Jerry, can you paint a picture of what life was like for you at the time when you first heard the Beatles music? Yeah, I was pretty young. Uh, I was only five years old. I But I grew up on kind of movie musical soundtracks. My mom and dad were really, you know, Rogers at Hammerstein, South Pacific, you know, West Side Story, you know, musicals like that. And uh um so yeah and the only rock and roll song i really remember from those days that my parents had was uh uh, chubby checkers uh the twist which was i guess quite the craze uh you know a few years before that but um anyway i i uh my dad was a navy pilot and so he was gone a lot lived in san diego and i i just remember what, what i remember those days is you know, the kids and I would spend endless hours skateboarding. This is this is back when skateboarding was a craze in California, you know, uh, right. in the early 60s. Uh, it was back still when they had those metal wheels that you couldn't you couldn't skateboard except on a very smooth, you know, concrete <laughs> yeah. surface. So, so, so yeah, how did you hear the Beatles for the first time? Well, my mom and I, I just remember, very, I remember this one of my earliest childhood memories. I remember very distinctly my mom and I are driving around, you know, San Diego. They had one of those little ugly Volkswagen bugs and uh, a puke yellow (laughs) (laughs) Volkswagen bug. And, um, and this song comes on the radio. I want to hold your hand and she sang it and I sang it. And I, I just remember very distinctly hearing it on the radio and singing along with my mom to this song. And it was just so, to me, it just captured the joys of childhood just perfectly, very infectious. And and I remember, uh, and so I, I became very young, you know, as this Beatles fan. And uh, I remember this very distinctly. Another distinctly thing I remember about the Beatles from when I was a child. Uh, my best friend, who was the same age I was, which was five, had an older brother. And so she and he's he and these other kids, older kids in the neighborhood, is like, who is better? Who's better? The Beach Boys or the Beatles? 
And little kids, we you know, we're like, oh, oh, the Beatles, the Beatles. <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty funny. Anyway. Uh, the Beatles are so much better, but the, I love the Beach Boys too. I love the Beach Boys too. I'm not yeah. taking anything away from the Beach Boys, but uh, <laughs> I think Brian Wilson's a genius, and and Pet Sounds is one of the best albums ever. But the Beatles, yeah. yeah. So, um, can you tell us a little more about how you grew up? Yeah, you know, my dad was in the Navy, and then he got out, and so he was originally from Texas, so we moved back to Texas. And so this is what I, I wrote in my book about my hometown, which was uh, I grew up in Texarkana, Texas, uh, where the Arkansas side sold alcohol. Uh, the Texas side preached against it and both sides consumed it religiously. So that was my that was my hometown growing up experience. Uh, a little Texarkana. Um, so, yeah. And when did you first become interested in reporting? We I can really blame my mom for that. I mean, I was reading three newspapers a day by the time I was seven years old, which people may not believe me, but I read pretty early. Um, and by the time I got to high school, I started working for the high school newspaper, uh, the Tiger Times, <laughs> that hard-hitting uh, expose. <laughs> and uh, true story, when I was, I was, uh, it was 1976, Ronald Reagan was running for president and he came to my hometown with Jimmy Stewart, no less. Oh, wow. And um, which I would be far more impressed by that than I was at that moment in time. <laughs> uh, I wish I could have it to do over again, uh, but I met him as well. But anyway, Reagan spoke and he kind of walked around, shook hands with the crowds. Never happened now because of the security. But anyway, the little aide saw me. I guess he saw my little press badge that said Tiger Times. <laughs> he goes, do you have a question for the governor? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and so he brought Reagan around and Reagan goes, I understand you have a question. I go, yes, I do. I was, I wonder what you thought about the presence of Cuban troops in Angola. Cause I mean, I, again, I was a news junkie. I mean, I like lived and breathed the news, <laughs> knew everything going on. And to me, that was something I just heard on the radio coming in. I thought, Oh, that's a great question. So I asked him and he's like, well, uh, and I'm not making this up. The aide dragged him away from me. <laughs> so here I am, a, high, a reporter from the Tiger Times. And, and he literally drags, uh, the aide drags way, Reagan away from me. It was hysterical. That's funny. So how did you go from the Tiger Times to being involved in solving such historical cases? Well, it's a, a, you know, it's a wild story. I, um, so I got in journalism and worked for several newspapers and then wound up in Mississippi. I was assigned in 1989 to cover the press premiere of Mississippi Burning, which is a fictional film about the Klan's killings of these three young men, civil rights workers in 64. And so I was just horrified to find out that these three young men, uh, you know, who this triple murder that had happened, nobody had ever been prosecuted for murder. And I covered courts. I knew courts well. That I mean, that just didn't happen. And so I couldn't wrap my head around that. I started writing about that case. About a month later, um, 
I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there was something called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was the state segregation spy agency. And they basically, um, you know, existed from the 50s into the 70s. Mississippi legislature officially got rid of them and sealed all those records for 50 years. So my first thought about when I found that out was, well, there's something in those records or they wouldn't be sealing them for 50 years. So I began to develop sources, leak me the records and what they showed at the same time. Uh, the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. Lebeckwith for the murder of Megarovers. This other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission, was secretly in defense trying to get him acquitted and nobody knew that. So, um, so that story ran October 1st of 89. At the time that my story ran, the odds were literally more than a million one against the case that had been re-over re-prosecuted. Uh, there was no murder weapon, no evidence, no trial transcript, none of that. But Merle Evers, the widow of Mega Evers, believed and she prayed and some amazing things happened. A couple months later, Jackson police were cleaning out a closet and have to find a box that contained the crime scene photographs the killing of Meg Rappers, including the wow. fingerprint of Byron de Lebec was lifted from the murder weapon. A few months after that, Merle ever shared with me her copy of the trial transcript that she had saved in a safety deposit box. And a few months after that, the prosecutor in the case found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet. Wow. Which sounds like I'm making it up, but it really did happen. Um, wow. But I went to go interview the killer. Um, and he, he lived in Signal Mountain, Tennessee. This is now April of 1990. And so I went to interview him. And, and by the way, on the way, true story, I was listening to the Beatles. Uh, on I the was, way. Yeah, yeah. I was actually listening to the White Album going up. I remember that distinctly, listening to the White Album going in. Because what I remember was that one song, you know, the Lennon song about uh, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. <laughs> I remember <laughs> listening to that going up the hill, you know. Wow. And, um, uh, which is a great, I love that song. Anyway, it's a great song. And so I I get up there and this guy is just absolute most racist person I've spent serious time with. It was inward this, inward that. And anyone who wasn't white was also very anti-Semitic, uh, part of Christian identity, which is this horrible racist religion anyway. But, uh, you know, how some people you talk to, you feel like afterwards you need a bath, you know, that, that was kind of the situation. And so um, it was starting to get dark. And I thought, well, yeah, it's a really good time to go. And uh, he insisted on like walking me out to my car. I'm like, really? That's okay. And uh, he walks me out of the car anyway. He says, if you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him. Wow. So his wife had made me a sandwich. I think, think you can guess what I did with the sandwich after that. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he, he was convicted um, in that case. Uh, and... Uh, and when the word guilty rang out, you could hear these kind of waves of joy as they cascaded down the hall. He was convicted uh, February 5th of 1994 since the life in prison. Yeah. Wow. I mean, obviously, as you said, the Beatles music 
the Beatles became popular during the era of civil rights and during the era that you've done most of your reporting on it. How did you become a fan? Well, weirdly enough, even though I kind of became a Beatles fan, I guess, of sorts when I was a young kid, I didn't really get into, for lack of a better term, get in their deep cuts. You know what I mean? I, like I was, I heard the stuff on the radio. I liked Hey Jude. I, I mean, there were Beatles songs I liked, but I didn't really have, I think I had Revolver. I bought that when I was younger. But I didn't really become a diehard Beatles fan until I got to college, which wasn't until the late 70s, mm-hmm. uh, early 80s. And I had an older roommate. And so he had these albums, which I'd never heard before. So he had the White Album. He had Sgt. Pepper's. He had, you know, uh, Abbey Road. And so I remember hearing those for the first time. I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> this, these are fantastic. How did I never hear these before, you know? And, and, um, and, and to back up to what I was listening to, I mean, I was a big Elton John fan and, and things like that, you know? Um, and not that I hadn't heard some of this, but it was, it, but again, these deep cuts, I'd, I'd, I'd not heard that side to Abbey Road and, and things like that. So, right. yeah. Uh, that must've been pretty cool hearing it for the first time was um did they influence your life in any way aside from music taste yeah i think so i mean i think it was really it's kind of interesting i kind of developed this interest in the 1960s before i began working on these cases if that makes sense like i had no idea that one day i would actually be writing and reporting about things that happened during this era you know um these murders, uh, you know, so I got real obsessed with that era. I remember uh, Rolling Stone put out a publication called the sixties. I remember reading that and, you know, so obviously about Vietnam and other things, protests and things like that, but also about the civil rights movement. So I really kind of became real fascinated with the era. Uh, It also started me listening to other music like Dylan, which I really didn't, you know, I had to listen to any to Dylan. Uh, again, maybe a few songs I heard on the radio, without, you know, I started listening to Dylan. And uh, I remember uh, after I interviewed Byron Deal Beckwith, uh, I found out he wrote a song about Meg Rivers. And so I went and listened to it only a pawn in their game. And, uh, and which is really the, the whole story is, you know, these poor white men are being, you know, pawns in the in the politicians the white politicians game and and it's some of that hadn't changed i mean politicians still continue to exploit people for kind of their own purposes their own gain. so mm-hmm. yeah only upon in their game is is one of my favorite dylan songs i actually have the album poster hanging on my wall yeah here. i see you have the dylan you have the, you have the yeah. album poster right there yeah um so for for someone who uh for someone who was listening to this song and and uh, grew up during this time period, what was it like for you watching uh, these these people get locked up and, and put away due to your work? Well, I'm very humble and uh, humbled by it. Uh, it was amazing to watch. I mean, um, you know, just to see these guys find it. I was just very grateful to see these families finally get justice Mm -hmm. because they had waited for justice for so long. 
and obviously it's imperfect justice because it's you know uh it came so late for so many of these families but but these families were happy to have even that imperfect justice so um yeah it was it was incredible every one of them was incredible to witness and watch you know all of them that i that i sat through just felt very privileged to and honored to have been a part of that right I am, um, you know, one of the reasons why I love the Beatles is because they were one of the only bands in the 60s to uh, say no to playing segregated audiences at their yeah. shows. And the Beatles were obviously very influenced by black music and and uh, and and Paul, um, you know, Blackbird is, is very much about um uh, I know Paula said it was it was because of Little Rock, you know, the you know, in 57 and, um, you know, kind of the integration of the school there and bird, of course, and in, in Britain means woman. So black woman, it was what he had reference to and was thinking about. So uh, the, the Beatles were very socially conscious and, and certainly uh, Lennon and you know Lennon and, and others to some extent, but especially Lennon, John Lennon did a lot of socially conscious songs. Do you have a favorite Beatle? Yeah, John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, I just always felt like John's song spoke to me. I I, I think you know, I always viewed John as a rebel, and I felt that way too in a lot of ways. Um, and I remember so distinctly, I was in college. And my roommate and I got together, we both had girlfriends and we got together and we had, a, this was October of 1980 and we had a 40th birthday party for John Lennon, you know, so we ate cake and <laughs> listened to John Lennon, you know, that was, that was our, that was our party. That is awesome. <laughs> and so a month later, Double Fantasy comes out and, oh, it was, you know, Pursuit was our first new album you know, rock and roll wasn't really new Lennon material. It was him doing covers, but, you know, it had been since Walls and Bridges since he had done new material. And I remember listening to Double Fantasy for the first time and, and just looking, wow, this is, and it sounded so fresh and new and, 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 and the guy sounds so happy, you know. And my roommate and I were like, okay, this is it, you know. Because he mentioned, and I think it was a Newsweek interview, that he was going to do a tour. He was going to go on tour. And so I'm like, my roommate, we're like, okay. Because we'd already done this with Elton John. You know, no matter where Elton John is, wherever he is, we're going to go. We went to Illinois one time to listen to Elton John. Oh, so we're wow. like, okay, wherever John Lennon is, you know, we're going. You know, wherever the closest place is, even if we have to drive, you know, however far or you know, we're, we're going. And, and then just weeks later, of course, the, the, the horrible, horrible news of, uh, of John Lennon being assassinated. I was just, I, I have never been so devastated by death. Even those close to me, you know, I've never been so devastated by death. My parents are still with me. Maybe I'll feel that more so when my parents are, are gone, but I've never been so devastated by death as I was by the death of John Lennon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, for I know for a lot of people, they felt like he was a very close friend or family member, and they hadn't even, hadn't even met him. Um, yeah, it's. I think you end up having this relationship with you know people that you feel like speak to you, whether it's through music. I think music, especially, um, absolutely. Do you have a favorite Beatles album? Abbey Road. Abbey nice. Road. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people pick Abbey Road, but it really is mine. I mean, I just remember so distinctly hearing Abbey Road for the first time, and it was just such a, especially side two, it was just such a revelation. I was like, man, this is a, you know, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think it's just, there's something about it. It's just really fantastic. It kind of takes you on this nice, clean adventure, you know? Like a summer it does. It does. I like it. It does. It does. I, I think... I mean, you can argue different albums. Um, I know some friends of mine, you know, are maybe bigger fans of Rubber Soul, which is probably more the American release, to be honest, right. uh, than, than, the, than the UK release, which now is the what, what's out there. But um, and Revolver, I know some people are bigger fans of Revolver, but it's, it's Sergeant Pepper. And some people say the White Album. So I, there are a lot of people that pick a lot of them. But to me, Abbey Road is... Uh, is the one do you have a favorite memory associated with the beatles yeah i saw paul mccartney concert in 1990 with my best friend from college and uh it was just terrific it was just a perfect night um we had fantastic seats i mean there weren't our seats but there were fantastic (laughs) seats (laughs) we had to give them up about halfway through the show but uh (laughs) The, the, well, I think what, so the concert had been uh, supposed to be in months earlier. I think Paul got sick or something like that. And so it had to be postponed. And I think that those tickets, which were pre sold before, but then they didn't sell them again or something. I don't know what happened. And so, uh, and I could, I, we saw them, they were handing out the tickets up in the balcony and the people came down and started taking the seats. Uh, but the thing I so distinctly remember about that concert is when he's saying, hey, Jude. And you know, I was in my early 30s at this time. And, you know, and the ages, it went from just the very youngest of kids, um, some on their like parents or grandparents' shoulders, all the way up into the 70s and people into their 70s. And he's saying, hey, Jude. And everybody, everybody sang along. And it's just, there's just something about music that can unite us in a way that, that nothing else can. And, and if you want a really weird bit of trivia, I was on the way to that concert when I interviewed Byron D. Lebeckwith, so. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Oh, wow. Um, I interviewed Byron D. Lebeck within Signal Mountain, Tennessee, and the concert was in Lexington, Kentucky. So, yeah. Oh, wow. What was, what was that like for you? Switching yeah, it was over. weird. It was very <laughs> weird. The whole thing was so weird anyway. It was also the same night. This, uh, the, when I interviewed Beckwith, it was also the same night that Twin Peaks debuted, which you may not know anything about Twin Peaks, but it's this David Lynch piece that's just, it was the weirdest thing ever that had ever been on TV at that moment in time. Uh, David Lynch was just a genius. I think. I've heard about that show, but I haven't gotten around to, to checking it out yet. Um, 
So, I mean, you were talking about, you know, grandchildren singing the lyrics to Hey Jude 30 years after it came out. And they're still doing it now 50 years after it came out. I know. What is it about the Beatles that makes them so much more than just a band and makes them uh, cross generations? Well, in general, if we're just talking about music in general, uh, it's one music is one of the few things in life that's transcendent. And the Beatles became so much more than the sum of their parts. And, you know, I mean, what all, I mean, we can, I guess we can all debate the reasons. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting to me, kind of there's a parallel with, with black music here in the States because they, they didn't come from London. They came from Liverpool and the seaport where black music kind of came in. Um, and then you see the same thing here in the South where you had black music kind of almost all American art uh, music forms came from this area that we're talking about, you know, jazz, you know, blues, R&B, you know, all those things originated almost in this area. And um, so, you know, what's fascinating to me is they could have been nothing more than a boys band. It could have been just a, you know, well, here's a boy, another boys band, you know, but they continue to experiment and evolve and progress and, and change music forever. And so you look at what the music was like before the Beatles came along and you look at what music was like after the Beatles and, and really not in terms of time for music, it's not even that much, but where, where it was when they started and where it was when they ended. And they're largely responsible for that. And wow. I mean, it's not, you know, it's the progression is incredible. And the, and the and their and their musicianship they got so much better. I mean, listen, listen to Paul's bass playing. You know, once they stopped, kind of, you know, they kind of spent more time in the studio. Wow, I mean, some of the musicianship the Beatles had, uh, and Paul, of course, is is so incredible musician, and, and George too. Um, and Ringo doesn't get enough credit. He, he's an incredible drummer as well. So, anyway. You know, you mentioned Paul's bass playing. I heard that uh, one of the reasons why he doesn't play too many songs from Sgt. Pepper while he's touring live now is because the bass lines were actually so intricate and so complicated that he can't possibly remember how they go. That may be true. I, I mean, but he would actually over i think he would overdub those after yeah. him, you know and take time and go back i knew he would wait you know maybe they'd already have the song down and then he'd come back and do the bass over it so uh yeah incredible incredible talent all of them really i mean yeah do you have a favorite beatles song yeah i think you know that's a t- it's always a tough one I, I mean uh i think hey jude is probably uh, if you're talking about McCartney's songs, I think that's the best song he ever did. Um, but then having said that, I'm, I'm also a very huge John fan. So I, I, I'd be a tough pick. You know, the, the obvious nominees would be In My Life, uh, Hey Jude, uh, they, you know, 
Um, I was just thinking of, you know, Julia is I, I, just a haunting song. I, I was mm-hmm. thinking about that earlier today. It's just, a, there's so many great songs they did. I, I just, I have a hard time picking because it just depends on the week. Right. <laughs> Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. I love that song. It's one of my yeah. favorites. Uh, <laughs> so Jerry, what are you up to now? What kind of projects have you been involved with recently? Yeah, so I, I started a nonprofit in 2019. I was investigative reporter for the statewide paper of Mississippi, declaring ledger for more than three decades, and then started this nonprofit, the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, in 2019. And so we worked with ProPublica for about a year investigating Mississippi prisons. We basically warned that if the state didn't do something, the prisons were going to blow up, and they did blow up. Um, 12 inmates dead by the end of this. The Justice Department's now investigating those prisons. Um, and we published a video not long ago. We worked together with NBC News and the Marshall Project and published a video. Basically, a video, it's kind of like Mississippi's equivalent of the George Floyd case. And um, and it turned out his own, and it's turned out this guy's mom, the guy's name is Robert Loggins, his mom. Um, it also died in the same jail 13 years earlier after uh, officers hogtied her. So really sad, sad story. But the Justice Department's investigating that case, too. Uh, we're also doing a current project on this Black mother for who's in prison for life in Mississippi for a murder that even the original pathologist believes didn't take place. So we're using that to kind of look at that case as well as kind of the death investigation system in Mississippi. You know, does it need to be changed? And if so, what needs to be changed and those kinds of things. So we're we're diving in all those those kind of really serious issues that need to be addressed. Is there anything listeners can do to help out? Absolutely. Uh, you can donate. Uh, we, we have our website is MississippiCIR.org. Uh, if people are interested in supporting uh, us, we'd appreciate that. Uh, but it's on the website. You can donate if you'd like, either by the month or, or one-time gift. Yeah, I'll, I will leave the link in the podcast description Thank so you. people can click on it. Jerry, I have one final question for you. Um, where do you see the Beatles' music and influence in the next 10, 50, and 100 years in the future? Well, I'll never forget this conversation I had in college. You know, there was some, and I, I had this argument with this guy. It was like, what music will people be listening to 100 years from now? And he wanted, he, his, his answer was, John Williams music, you know, like the soundtrack to like say Star Wars or, you know, E.T. or, you know, take your pick. Um, and I was like, nah, it's going to be the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I'll, I always think what I think about that now is I was right. You know, I was right. right. Still <laughs> listening to how much how many people are buying John Williams records and how many people are buying Beatles records? I mean, I think I've yeah. <laughs> won that argument. But, uh, you know, many of their songs, you you know, like let's say Abbey Road, and you play those, they sound just as fresh as the day they were released. 
I mean, the production value is exquisite um, and, and it still sounds terrific. And I was listening the other day to come together because, and the reason I was, was because Ringo said that was his favorite song. I thought that was interesting. I was like, you know, I, need, I, I haven't listened to that in a bit. So I, so I put it on and listened to it. And, you know, it's such a perfect song. It would be another one you could pick for best Beatles song. But, you know, it's got that John's just this guttural delivery and and guitar and typical John guitar. And then and then we were talking about Paul's bass playing earlier. Oh, my. Yeah. Incredible bass playing. Some of the best, best playing bass playing on a on a, uh, a pop record. And then uh, Ringo's drumming. I don't know if it's ever been better than it is on Abbey Road. And, and that song is a great example of that. And then, of course, Harrison's guitar solo, which he had some great guitar solos, but it's a great example of one. And, and of course, his two songs, Contributions to Abbey Road, are two, in my opinion, the two best songs he ever did. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, for the Beatles. Uh, and then you've got that kind of swampy sound from the Fender Rose that I think Paul was playing. And so it's, uh, it, it's a, you know, it's hard to predict the future. I think people, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen in the future, but I have to say, it would not surprise me if a hundred years from now, teenagers are still discovering the Beatles and listening to come together you know i just think listening to abbey road i i wouldn't be surprised yeah that that would be that would be a great world to live in <laughs> it's happening now you know teenagers are doing that. i oh, did yeah. that just five years ago my kids know it because i i, I played it for them all the time but anyway. right yeah cool well jerry thank you so much for coming on it was an honor talking to you and an honor well, having you on the podcast Thanks for thanks for having me very much and uh, enjoy talking to you. <laughs>